Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. In honor of International Holocaust Remembrance Day, we've invited two authors to talk about their latest novels. Both novels depict everyday heroism in the early 1940s as the Nazis terrorized Europe. First, Neil Schusterman will tell us about his new graphic novel for young readers. It's called Courage to Dream, Tales of Hope in the Holocaust. The book is beautifully illustrated by Andres Vera Martinez. Next, Sharon Cameron will talk about Artifice, her latest work of historical fiction for middle graders. Neil is the New York Times bestselling author of more than 30 award-winning books for children, teens, and adults, including the Skinjacker Trilogy and Challenger Deep, which won the National Book Award. This week, he was honored by the ALA with the Margaret A. Edwards Award for Lifetime Achievement in Writing for Young Adults. Sharon is the author of the international bestseller and Reese's Book Club pick, The Light in Hidden Places, and the critically acclaimed thriller, Bluebird. Her debut novel, The Dark Unwinding, was named a Yalsa Best Fiction for Young Adults selection among several other honors. I'm delighted to welcome Neil and Sharon to the podcast. First, here's Neil. Hi, Neil. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. Please tell us about Courage to Dream, your new graphic novel. It's my first graphic novel. And it's a book that I've been working on for 13 years. So it really is a labor of love. And being a Jewish American, I always wanted to tell a story about the Holocaust, but didn't quite know how I would do it, how I would use the type of writing that I do to tell, which is, which is mostly science fiction and stories that are surreal in one way or another. How I was going to use my style to tell a story about something so difficult, a subject as the Holocaust. And I thought of the idea of using fantasy as a way of of illustrating these stories and bringing out a different perspective. It really started with this one story that I had written years ago called He Opens a Window. It was a short story that was sort of a, an Anne Frank kind of situation where these girls were being hidden in a room and uh, the woman who owns the house tells them they must never look out of the window because someone on the street might see them and turn them over to the Nazis. But one day when they do look out of the window, they see another world through that window. And so the story is about can they escape this harsh reality into this beautiful other world that's on that other side of the window. And that story, I thought, would work as a graphic novel. So I started to write the script for it because I found that writing a graphic novel from the text standpoint is very much like writing a movie script, which I've done. And as I was writing it, I started getting all of these other ideas for different stories, using that, that concept of fantasy and blending it with reality. Uh, I'd never seen that done before for stories of the Holocaust, and it, it excited me to try to attempt something. The difficulty was making sure that it was respectful and that it really did a, a good job of being sensitive to the subject matter. I had never seen that treatment before, and it really does, as you say, open a window. But 
give one different perspectives on what we all know was a, a horrible, horrible thing, but makes us see it differently. Yes. As a writer, that's what I'm always trying to do is trying to look at new perspectives and look at things differently. What I was hoping was that, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot of kids out there who might not pick up a book about the Holocaust. They might not want to read historical fiction. They might not want to, to delve into such a difficult subject. But here was a way of bringing in readers that might not normally read this kind of story and then get them interested in it and wanting to know what really happened. And there's a blend. You have five stories and each has sort of a mythical or folkloric addition. And then there is historical information at the end of each. Could you talk about the structure a little bit? Every story was inspired by something real. And I wanted to bring the story back at the end to what really happened. Like for instance, there's a story about, about Denmark and what Denmark did and what the Danes did to save the Jews of Denmark when the Nazis came in and were going to deport the Jews to the death camps. The Danish people, they weren't having that. They weren't going to allow their Danish brothers and sisters to be taken away. And so they organized this fleet of private boats. You know, everyone who owned a boat ferried the Jews of Denmark from Copenhagen across the Orisund to Sweden and freedom. And it made me think of a time in history when the Jews were being pursued and were faced with a body of water that they couldn't cross. And I thought, well, what if the story is about a kid who happens to have the staff of Moses? And when he gets to the water and, you know, the, the Nazis are pursuing them and they, they have to escape, they see Sweden across the water and they can't get to it. He says, I got this. And he raises that staff. Now you think it's going to part like the Red Sea, but I wanted to tie it into the reality. What ends up happening is that all the sunken ships between there and Sweden rise to the surface to form a land bridge for them to cross into Sweden. So ultimately, it was the skill of Danish shipbuilders that saved the Jews of Denmark. And that ties it right back into what really happened. And then at the end of the story, there's a double page spread talking about what really happened. And so it sort of shows how the fantasy was inspired by reality. The story in Denmark truly is remarkable. And the way people responded and helped and didn't hesitate to do the right thing. You wish there were more people like that. Truly. In more situations where people rose to fight against what the Nazis were doing. And it made such a difference there in that country. Very much so, yes. How did you go about conducting research for Courage to Dream? There was a, a quite a lot of research. I wanted to make it as authentic as I could. And so I went online and just f went to so many different websites, read so many different books about the death camps, about the resistance. This is a story that's, that's about the resistance fighters. A lot of folklore. The story about the resistance fighters, what happens in that story is that it takes place in the woods and you also find fairy tales in the woods. So characters from Jewish and Eastern European folklore are there in the woods and they help the resistance fight against the Nazis. So I had to do a lot of research in terms of folklore and, and fairy tales. It was a, a fascinating and fun process doing that, that part of the research. I bet. I was wondering if you had grown up with Jewish folklore and tales like that. Yes, I had. You also, I understand, worked very closely with the illustrator, Andres Vera Martinez. 
Could you talk about the process? Because it's clearly so the words and illustrations are just so beautifully intertwined. It's like you could read each other's minds almost. What's interesting is that we didn't work closely together. We never met each other. We never spoke to each other until after the book was published. And then when I was on tour, we had the chance to tour together and actually meet for the first time. (laughs) It's like mental telepathy. How did that happen? I know, it's speechless, right? Well, first of all, it took a long time to find Andres. We wanted to find an artist that could capture the fantasy, but at the same time, capture the reality and blend them. And, you know, there were artists that we looked at that were great with the fantasy, but they just couldn't do reality. It felt too much like a Marvel superhero kind of feel. And then there were ones who could really capture the gritty reality, but the fantasy looked cheesy. So trying to find an artist that could do both and really had the imagination to to look at the stories and create these amazing visuals. I mean, there are pages within the book that still give me chills when I look at them. But it was all done kind of by proxy through Scholastic. I had written the stories. And then once we found Andres, which took a few years, he would send back his sketches to the publisher and they would show it to me. And then I would comment and then they would give the notes to him. And so that's the way we work together. My goodness. How long did that process take? It took about five years. What did you learn in the course of your research that surprised you the most? Reading about Auschwitz and the death camps, these are things that I already knew. And so there was nothing really surprising about it. What was interesting was trying to figure out a way of telling these stories in in, in a unique way. But we know what happened during the Holocaust, and we know the stories. So there was nothing that stood out as surprising in terms of the reality. I mean, horrifying, yes. And that was that was hard. As, As much as the research was for things like Spirits of Resistance was fun. The research on the death camps and all of that was was so difficult and so painful to have to look at these stories that, that I already knew, but really look at the details of them was a difficult thing to do, but necessary. I felt like and if I didn't come from a place where I really did as much research as I could, then then I was cheating, then I wasn't, then I wasn't really delving into the subject as, as well as I should have. What do you hope young readers will take away from Courage to Dream? I hope that they'll take away a sense of hope in the face of despair, that even in these dark times, there were stories of people who did remarkable things, who put themselves at risk to help save people. And even in the darkest of times, things like folklore and your, your, the stories that connect you to your people uh, are there to help support you. I mean, that was kind of the metaphor of that particular story was that here is all of your history, all of your culture rising to help you survive and defeat the Nazis. Growing up, did you feel a sense of isolation or marginalization as a Jewish child? I never felt a sense of marginalizations. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, in a Jewish, Italian, Irish neighborhood. And we all got along and we were all friends. We would all go over to each other's houses and, and my Italian friends would come over and have latkes and I would go over to their house and have veal parmesan and stuff like that. So I, I, never felt, I never felt that. That's great to hear. 
I wanted you to talk a little bit about the final story in Courage to Dream, which is even more of a a fantasy or a leap, if you will, from what actually happened and hits among the hardest stories in there, I think. The last story was a story that I was most concerned and worried about writing, but I felt that it was necessary. I felt that it needed, it was needed to tie in everything to sort of bring everything full circle. It takes place current day. It's not a story that takes place during the Holocaust. And it's, it's a girl whose grandmother was a survivor. And unfortunately, you know, as time goes on, we're losing more and more survivors. Eventually, there won't be any left. So you know, we need to be there to tell their stories. Her grandmother on her deathbed gives her a gift, this crystalline shell. It's a shell made out of glass. Now, when you put a seashell to your ear, they say you hear the ocean, but that's not what she hears. Deep spinning in the spirals of that shell, she hears voices, thousands of voices rising. And when she takes it away, she finds that there's voices downstairs in her home. And she goes downstairs to see that there's a gathering of cousins and aunts and uncles and great aunts and great uncles. The thing is, is that she doesn't have great aunts and great uncles. She doesn't have all these cousins. And she comes to realize that, that by putting that shell to her ear, it transported her to a world where the Holocaust never happened. And this is the extended family she would have had, had the Holocaust never happened. And by putting that shell to her ear, she can go back and forth between the two worlds, you know, this world that we know and that one. And so, of course, she wants to exist in the world where it never happened until a brick comes flying through the window and people outside are screaming anti-Semitic things. And she finds out that there is a, a political party rising here in the United States today that is very much mirroring the Nazi party. She realizes that the Holocaust didn't happen 80 years ago. It happened now. It's happening now. It's about to happen. And she has to decide which world does she want to live in, a world where millions of people were murdered by the Nazis or a world where that didn't happen, but it was about to happen now. And how much worse would it be now? And ultimately, she has to come to terms with that and realize that the memory of the people who never existed has to be honored. And she has to find courage and hope in that, in that memory. So powerful. And it leads to my next question. Why are these stories especially important now? The stories are incredibly important now. You know, when I was on tour, I was on tour in the midst of everything that was happening uh, in the Middle East. And I, you know, this is a book about history. I didn't want to talk about what was going on currently. But the thing is, what's happening here in the United States is that since October 7th attacks, there has been a 400% rise in anti-Semitic acts in the United States. And it, it's horrifying to see. A, a lot of my Jewish friends fear for their lives. And you think about, oh, this happened way back then. This isn't happening now. No, unless we're vigilant, we need to constantly be vigilant to make sure that it doesn't happen again. And I think we need to remember. As you know, January 27 is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. What does this annual commemoration mean for you? For me, it's an affirmation of my own Judaism. It's an affirmation that we are all connected 
And not just Jewish people, but everybody. You know, Holocaust Remembrance Day, everybody is remembering the Holocaust. And everybody is joining in. And I think it is something that we all share in. We all need to share in that memory. This is not something that happened way back then to other people. This is something that is part of our own history, all of us. And we all have to be able to relate to that and connect to it. Is there anything you'd like to add, Neil, before we wrap up? First of all, I want to thank Andres Vera Martinez for his amazing artwork. It was so much fun to be on the road with him. We only got together for a few days and spoke at a few schools. But to see him talk about his process and how it connected so well with mine, it was really, it was really wonderful. I also want to talk about the schools that I visited and the, the teachers and students that I met. There were a lot of schools who were saying that they have already put this book on their curriculum because they wanted something that could be a transition into more darker stories, Elie Wiesel stories, Night. They, they were saying that they want to start with Courage to Dream and then move from that into Night. I think it is a good book for breaching, for broaching the subject, for opening up the subject and bringing kids into it. So it's, it's been really wonderful to be on the road and see how the book is already being used. That's great to hear. It's a beautiful book, and I recommend it to people of all ages, not just young people. Thank you so much. Now, here is Sharon Cameron, the award-winning author of Artifice. She's joining us from her home in Nashville, Tennessee. Hi, Sharon. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you for having me. First, tell us a little bit about yourself. You have said you're, quote, an accidental writer. I do think of myself as, as an accidental writer. I think at some point it was an accident that I worked very, very hard to make happen. But I do think of it that way. Writing is certainly a second career for me. I was a classical pianist for a very long time, 20-something years, and I thought that's what I would do forever. But one fateful day and a 45-minute session at my computer, um, just I fell head over heels in love with creating story and the written word. And I haven't looked back since, but it's not how I thought I'd be spending my life. So, so I do look back on these events like doing this podcast and, and think, wow, what a surprise, a beautiful surprise. It, it truly is, and we are the better for it. Tell us about Artifice, your latest work of historical fiction, and the inspiration behind it. Artifice was definitely the book of, of my heart. It tells the story of Issa DeSmit, who is a girl who has grown up in the glittering bohemian world of her parents' art gallery in Amsterdam. But this is a world that has been utterly destroyed by the Nazi occupation. The art has been confiscated because it is degenerate and the artists are gone. Their friends and family are gone because they have, are Jewish or communist or gay. And so Issa decides to create her own revenge. She decides to learn the art of a master forger so that she can sell a forged painting to Hitler. And she will take this money from this forged painting and she will use it to fund 
a baby smuggling ring, a wing of the Dutch resistance that is smuggling the last Jewish babies and toddlers out of the city. It is a move that makes her look, though, like a collaborator to one side and a criminal to the other. So her only help comes from a very unlikely source, a confiscator of art, a German soldier who says he wants to desert his post. Or does he? I had a lot of fun writing this story. It is based on two true stories. The story of Johann von Holst, who was an absolutely amazing man who headed a baby smuggling ring. He was taking children out of the prison where they were being held, putting them in shopping sacks, laundry baskets, handing them out of the windows, over hedges, whatever he could do to save their lives. And it is also based on the true story of Han von Megren, one of the most notorious art forgers of the 20th century who sold a forged Vermeer to Hermann Goring. And that painting hung over Goring's desk as the jewel of his art collection. And he made money hand over fist and he lived it up during the war while the rest of the country starved. I think the juxtaposition between these two men, two men from the same city that lived in the same place at the same time that really kind of look alike, they just could not have used their time and their talents more differently. And I think that's, that's really what interested me and made me want to write this book. Set the stage, if you would, about what was going on in Amsterdam at the time with the Nazi occupation and how it disrupted life irreparably. I don't think it could have disrupted life more. I think Amsterdam had a similar story as many occupied cities across Europe with a government that it was exiled, um, taken over either by sympathizers or by Nazi-appointed officials, everything changed from the education system to the economic system. Really nothing remained the same. I do think in some ways, though, for many, or at least the early years of the war, the Dutch people did have maybe a bit of an easier time. The Germans did consider them part of the Aryan race. So if you were not Jewish, For a while, maybe you were okay, but that didn't last till the end. There seems to be, to me, such a conundrum between this Nazi love of art and hatred of people. How do you square that? That's another huge theme of this book and another uh, reason why I really wanted to write a story like this and sort of explore this thirst for culture and art that that the Nazis had and how that almost feels like a way to cover an incredible ugliness inside. I think that is what I see is is this longing to be seen as something beautiful when you know that you are not. And I think that's such an interesting psychological conundrum like you said and and a huge theme a huge theme of the book. Fascinating. How did you go about researching artifice? Oh, I I could talk all day about my research. <laughs> I assume you don't want me to do that. <laughs> my research is probably one of my joys of writing. 
For this book, obviously, I went to Amsterdam, you know, went to the places I looked at these neighborhoods, I, I found these buildings so that I could create a picture of the city really as it was. The city is almost a character, I feel like, an artifice. And I wanted that to be accurate if you were a Dutch person reading this book, that you would wanted to be able to see where you were and feel the the accuracy of the of the place. But I think one of the most interesting stories is, you know, I traveled overseas to do all of this research, but right before I left, I got some information that there was a man uh, living just uh, a few miles up the road from me who was a Dutch immigrant who had lived through the Nazi occupation as a teenager. And so I made an appointment to speak with him. He was such a lovely, interesting man. And when he asked me what I was writing about, I told him about Johan von Hulst. I told him, told him about Han von Megren. And he said, oh, well, you do know that my father was von Megren's accountant. And I said, no, no, I did not know that at all. And he said, yes, I... I knew von Megren. My father was eventually the executor of his will. I met him. I was in his art studio. And so he gave me incredible information um, that really informed those parts of the books in particular about what was in that studio and what kind of art was hanging on this man's walls, what his personality was like. And, you know, I thought it is amazing that we go overseas, we go to all these links to get incredible information. And sometimes it's just sitting 15 minutes up, up the road. You're a big one for primary sources and oral history, and it certainly pays off in your work. I absolutely am. I am so grateful, particularly to our United States Holocaust Memorial Museum and for the oral histories that they put online that everyone should take advantage of listening to these real people and their stories. Could you read an excerpt from Artifice for us? Oh, absolutely. How long would you like for me to read? Like, you know, just 45 seconds or so. I think showing Amsterdam as a character is also very cool because I felt that deeply. Okay. I've got this little Amsterdam section right here. Amsterdam, the Netherlands, September 1943. Every eye follows when you walk like you have something to hide. So Issa DeSmit slowed her steps, hummed, dug for a handkerchief in the pocket of her tatty wool coat, blended into the background, faded into a landscape of steep-stepped gables and moving feet, and the gazes passed her by on the morning-misted street, glancing across her cheeks with the barest of breaststrokes. Issa wanted to be seen and remain unnoticed, because Issa had something to hide. She tucked her package tight beneath her arm. Amsterdam was a colorful city. Blue boats and blue doors, a butter-framed window in marmalade brick, Leaves that were autumn-tinted, fog-frosted, marbling the pale acid lime of a copper patina. But there were new shades on the city's palette now, battered on the walls, dripping down the flagpoles, black on blood-red, army olive, khaki brown. 
Nazi brown. Beautiful. So beautiful. Now, Isa has some historical context in and of herself beyond the art forgery and the baby smuggling that we're melding in. Could you tell us a little bit about the character she's based on? I think Isa is an interesting amalgam of Dutch people that I have known, probably a lot of myself and a lot of my artistic friends. I I very much drew from the creative artistic brains that, that I tend to surround myself with to create a character who is really steeped in color and light and form and the beauty of her world. And I wanted to create, I think, a character like that to contrast that with what her world had become. Almost like I read on the first page, her world had been sparkling and bright, and she was plunged into a place that was dark and drab and washed of its color. And so I, I had a really wonderful time writing Issa's emotions as color. I have a very good artist friend who does that very thing. And I use that with her permission. And I wanted to create that kind of creative mind and explore what a creative mind like that would do when plunged into so much darkness. And, you know, I think that is really maybe a lot of what I wanted to say with this book. I didn't know that when I started writing the book, but the idea that we as human beings can choose our own beauty, that we can choose to preserve what is beautiful and good in our world, and we can build that beauty and rebuild it when it gets knocked down, and we can create that as part of our own world. That is a choice we can make. And that is a power that I think a lot of us don't realize that we actually do have. And I think in times of trauma, that can be very healing. I would think now in particular, this would be an important book for young people with all of the trauma we're seeing worldwide. I would hope so. I think the book is in building that kind of beauty. I think that is exactly what the book is also trying to say about anger. We experience, I think, a lot of anger in our world right now because of the darkness that we experience. And building beauty is one way to deal with that anger. Now, we're marking International Holocaust Remembrance Day this month. I wondered what that day means to you and how you look at artifice in the light of of that. Well, obviously, it's a day that means an incredible amount to me. I am not Jewish, but I find that it has become very important to me as a human being and a citizen of this world to tell these stories of the Holocaust and to make sure that the Holocaust itself just isn't forgotten with the, obviously we can't let that happen, but that these individual stories of these people are not lost. And every time I tell one of these stories, it feels a little bit like a rescue to me. I have wanted to focus on telling the stories of 
not only the people who survived, though those stories are incredibly important, but people who took a stand and people who stood up and decided to do something. And that is why this remembrance means so much to me. As a human of the world, I can't allow this to happen again. I do not want this to happen again on my watch. But I also want to put these stories of the past in front of the people of today and say, look at what these people of the past have done. They stood up and they did something about it. And I think that's where the challenge lies for us today. Thank you so much, Sharon. You're very welcome. Is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up? I think I would just like to add that I think it is important for these stories to come from as many places as possible. And when I say these stories, there are genocides happening all over the world. And when I say I don't want this to happen again, I don't want it to continue to happen the way it is happening now. And so I am really looking to use story and use books as a place of challenge, but also as a place of healing for a world. If one book can do that for one person, then I'm glad I've written all of these. Well, I certainly am so happy you became a writer. (laughs) Thank you. Me too. (laughs) It's been a joy to talk with you. Thank you so much. My great thanks again to Neil Schusterman and Sharon Cameron for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about the titles we discussed and for a curated selection of fiction and nonfiction for young people about the Holocaust, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. You can also learn more about an upcoming book by Alice Hoffman, due out in September, When We Flew Away, a novel of Anne Frank before the diary, explores the little-known story of Anne Frank's life before she went into hiding. Special thanks to producer Maxine Osa, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.